Welcome back to Campbell Conversations with your host Colin Campbell and today is episode 206 of the podcast and I'm joined in conversation by Dr. Julie Gurner. Dr. Julie is an executive performance coach who spent the past 14 years working with top executives, the best talent and teams operating in the most successful and biggest industries and companies across the world. Julie specializes in improving personal productivity, focus and decision making strategies and unlocking the very highest levels of performance and success. Expect to learn what drew Dr. Julie to psychology, how this background and understanding has shaped her career and services and skills, and how helpful it is being compared to Wendy Rhodes from the TV show Billions when it comes to explaining quite what her role is. Beyond this, we really lift the lid on what clients who operate at the very top level already want to work on and improve on, what common strengths they have, what areas they want to develop and work on, and how Dr. Julie has supported with both self-limiting beliefs and on the flip side, an out-of-control Eagle. Lastly, I encourage you to take out a pen and paper or open your phone notes app to take down how to fight up front and have challenging conversations and give feedback. That section on the podcast is worth its weight in gold on its own. Today's podcast is sponsored and supported by not one of my usual sponsors, but actually by my upcoming podcast masterclass course. Most podcasts fail. 80% of podcasts stop before even recording episode 8, then hundreds of thousands more drop off before episode 24. The odds of a podcast succeeding are so low, but that does not have to be the case. The benefits and opportunities that recording a podcast for the last three years have unlocked for me have been incredible, whether that's for business, personal brand, my network. It opens up so many doors, and that could be you too if this is an area that you care about. I've learned so much in building a top 1% global podcast, but... It's time for me to share those lessons with you. And I've distilled all that experience down into a simple to follow nine module video course, including equipment and software guides, templates for managing and securing the best guests in your niche, and even the secrets to researching and preparing for your interviews before it comes time to market and distribute it to the biggest possible audience. It's due to release in October. So if you are listening before that, you can register your interest early by DMing me on Instagram or on LinkedIn, the word masterclass, and I will add you to the early bird discounted offer for the first 50 people who sign up for the course. I advertised it for the first time on the last week's episode with Dakota and we already have a number of names down so please do not hesitate if you are interested in starting, launching and building your own successful podcast. But that's quite enough from me in this introduction. I loved hosting Dr. Julie on the podcast and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it as well. Please make sure you've hit subscribe or follow whatever app you're listening on and if you're an Apple podcast or a Spotify listener make sure you navigate your thumb to that five star rating button which does help the show keep growing and keep having fantastic conversations like this one that you're about to enjoy with myself and Dr. Julie Gurner. Dr. Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And you made a joke before we hit record that what you've been doing as your role for a period of time now has almost been a little bit of a secret. But before we get to that, I understand that in your early days in college, you were actually kind of gearing towards being a surgeon of all things. What sort of changed the path to make you go down the route that you've gone down now? 
So what's so interesting is, you know, I wanted to be a surgeon because I was a really meticulous child. You know, I was the child that like took apart their father's watch and tried to put it back together, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so much. Um, but I was always interested in problem solving and fixing in a very kind of deep, meticulous level. And so I thought, you know, surgery is a very natural extension of that. I can focus for long periods of time. It's the thing that I'm really interested in. And so I started to take pre-medical uh, courses and the courses themselves, even though I did well, were really dry. I mean, it was just really dry content for me. And when I started to look at the job itself, the job itself wasn't, you know, I, I kind of shadowed a surgeon. It wasn't exactly the lifestyle and kind of the type of work that I felt like I would really enjoy. Most of the work is not do it's not always doing the surgery. It's a lot of other things. And um, so I took some electives in college around philosophy and I just fell in love with philosophy. But you know, you can't be a philosopher. So uh, you know, sit up on the hill and do that and get paid to do it. So I, um, I took some psychology courses and it was a really practical bridge for me to see science applied and philosophy really applied to people in a way that solved very tangible, practical problems. So I was able to be that problem solver, that kind of mechanic in a way, but not so much in the body, but more in the mind. And so that to me became a very fulfilling path forward. It felt very natural for me. And I continued that path of study, you know, all through college, through graduate school, and to where I'm at today. What I find so impressive is, of course, there's an element of you being able to post up rationalize some of that but equally at the time you recognized that philosophy was maybe lighting your fire a little bit more but from a practical perspective and understanding how you were wired as a person you were like well I probably need to find a way to channel this which is a career rather than maybe a, a luxury of a, a Socrates or an Aristotle or something like that in the in the, in, in the, in the modern yes. age in which in which we live so I really respect your ability to think yes this is something that's important and it's pulling me it's calling me but what does this mean in terms of me? And I'm not necessarily just saying monetize it, but for me to be able to do this day to day and and uh, and live a life that I want to live. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, it allows you to still use that content in your everyday work. You know, how people think about their world and life is very much based in their philosophy about the world and, and how they think about themselves. So I was able to really, it, it also challenged me to look at the world through a variety of lenses, which I think is innately very hard for us to do. We see the world through one lens, it's our lens. But, you know, philosophy challenges you to see it through, you know, the lens of people you don't agree with, the lens of people who are theologians that you may not agree with the, the lens of uh, people who are, you know, dictators and, uh, you know, Caesar and all sorts of different people. So, you know, it is really fascinating to see the world through so many different lenses and especially to challenge yourself to remain objective and to be able to just study someone else's way of thinking and to study it without judgment and to be able to really piece it apart. And to me, that was the most fascinating thing because you can see remnants of how people view the world and how it impacts their life every day. And to me, that was the most important takeaway of it, especially when you start to combine that with things like psychology that gets more into science and statistics than a lot of people might imagine. You know, psychology in my path forward, we had, you know, four different, uh, you know, years of statistical analysis and, you know, looking at things from a neurological perspective or neurobiological perspective. So it was a nice marrying of those things to not get too in the science in that way, but also to expand it outward into kind of practical ways in which people think about the world they live in. Absolutely. And what were the areas of psychology in those early days that maybe drew you in in the same way that the philosophical thought and the considerations lit your fire? 
Sure. Um, the early the early ways is uh, really I got into personality theory very heavily, and you know my area of study in psychology in graduate school. You know my my area of specialization was adult psychopathology and forensics, and so personality theory is really part and parcel. You have to understand people in, in very uh, deeply to be able to evaluate them at the level that you know both the courts require, but also you know you're assessing things like dangerousness, risk. You're assessing mental state at the time of the offense, you're assessing their competence before they stand trial. So you you not only are giving tests, but you have to really understand people and how they present and you know why they're presenting in a certain way. And to be able to really um, put a lot of different disparate pieces together. And I think that's where I've found in psychology focusing on personality theory, focusing on, you know, how the mind functions, looking a lot at cognitive theory. I'm a big fan of cognitive uh, theory and, and cognitive behavioral ways of, of thinking about uh, correction. So I, I do think really, for me, uh, personality theory was something that really struck a chord and it's something I was able to even teach at a university level. Um, I did an advanced course in personality theory in Ireland at one point uh, for a semester and I was very excited to be there. It's a beautiful country. Wow. It's, uh, it's interesting because personality is something that many people that listen to a podcast like this one are interested in. And of course, we have elements of pseudoscience around personality types and personality sure. traits that people have. And one of the interesting things that I find around that is sometimes if somebody does one of the kind of more common tests like a Myers-Briggs or a, a disc personality mm -hmm. test, and and I don't put trends amount of stock in all of that because a lot of the time if somebody does a test and they get a particular outcome, they say, that's the way I am. So um, mm -hmm. if we're using the DISC model, I'm really analytical and process driven. I'm really blue. That's just how I am. That's just how you have to show up for me. And that's how I show up in my work, my relationships, and my life. And I know from the work that you were inspired by, there's large elements of understanding your personality, but how can I shape and change that in a positive way, which is a far more empowering message than this is how you are and this is how you're going to behave for the rest of your days on this earth. I completely agree with you. I think that, you know, the trap of some of these things is that when we begin to define ourselves by certain labels, we start to entrench ourselves in those traits, right? So that we see, for example, the person who says, oh, I have a really bad temper. They're less likely to kind of shift that temper because they see themselves as somebody who, well, you just have to understand I have a bad temper. But even things like temperament that are highly genetic and highly biological, we do have the ability to shift and change and, and kind of express it differently. And I think we can limit our ability to kind of shift and change those things by the messages we tell ourselves about who we are. And so those messages are incredibly important. So even if you do take one of those tests and you believe that it resonates with you, I think it's important to take a look and say, okay, you know, I do tend to think in this way, but these are ways in which, you know, I want to remain flexible or I want to remain uh, able to be open to operating in different capacities to flex outward, to grow, and not to make sure that you're putting yourself in a box and labeling that box in a way that uh, keeps you small and keeps you contained. Exactly that. And self-limiting beliefs is certainly something that I'm sure we'll discuss as this conversation goes, but that goes for your ambitions within business or career or relationships or, or your body, whatever it is. But it also goes for the inner workings of your mind and the kind of way that you show up. So like you can have a self-limiting belief that, as you said, I'm just an angry person. I just get road rage. Okay. Like you've verbalized that, but what are you going to do about it? Right. Do you have to? I mean, so it, it almost becomes this 
uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, right? That you say, I am the person who does this and therefore you do it over and over and over again. But there is a way in which you can say, look, I've experienced road rage. I don't find that to be a great trait. And so next time I feel that urge within myself, uh, I'm going to, to make an effort to kind of put on a better piece of music, maybe calm myself a little bit down, maybe give my girlfriend or boyfriend a call and uh, kind of distract myself into a better way of processing this or voice my frustration frustration in a different way. So I do think that there are ways in which we can challenge ourselves in the day-to-day -day that most people just don't. I think we we go through the world mostly on autopilot and it is much to our detriment. We can obviously, we can shift ourselves, we can change ourselves, we can change how we move in the world, we can change how we uh, begin to pursue things. And I think that is one of the, the most powerful things about who we are as human beings is that we have that opportunity. We're not uh, destined in a way that um, we are unable to overcome. We watch people overcome all the time. Absolutely. And and if we were to fast forward from those days of moving from philosophy to um, psychology to, to the executive coach that we get to speak to now, how can you help us join those dots? Because as, as you say, it was almost a little bit of a secret, this type of job that you've got that people maybe find harder to pinpoint exactly what it means. And I know there's been cases where executive coaching is almost, I don't want to say lumped in, but associated with therapy. And there's some clear differences there, of course. Sure. I mean, uh, an executive coach, I, the difference between a therapist and an executive coach to me are that therapists go from you know illness to health. Right? People who are ill seek you out and uh, they're going to a place of health, or at least you hope to guide them there. If you are somebody who's an executive coach, you're taking people who are healthy. If somebody were uh, struggling with a genuine mental illness, I would refer them to a therapist. I would not deal with those issues uh, personally, and I don't feel like I'm really equipped to do that. So, I mean, the, the executive performance coach uh, takes someone from who is already functioning quite well and then helps them to unlock the, the sticking points that people face and helps to, them to be more optimal in what they do. You know, the people that I work with, they are in highly, you know, high stress, high pressure, often globally competitive environments, and they want every advantage that they can have, but they also are people who, you know, that stress impacts them. They also are individuals who need to improve sometimes decision-making. They are, they are individuals who want to improve in communication. They want their companies to get bigger, faster. They want to be able to grow and expand. And so, you know, they are growth-oriented people in everything that they do. And I think that, you know, just as you might use an engineer if you're like, hey, I want my coding to be better. I want my product to be better. So I'm gonna hire the best engineers that is somebody who might reach out and say, hey, you know, I want to perform at my best. And so I'm going to hire kind of the person who will help me do that. And so in that way, I'm often brought in to help individuals who are doing quite well. And I think for the majority of people, they would look at them and say, wow, why are you hiring anyone? You're doing great. Uh, but to themselves, I think no matter who you are, right, like whether you're starting out or you're somebody who is incredibly successful, if you ask people, they will almost always say that they believe they're capable of more than where they're at. And so I think that that's oftentimes where I'm tapped because they see that gap between where they're at right now and what they know they're capable of. And so I'm kind of meant to help bridge that gap and get them where they want to be. And I feel like that is probably the most exciting job that someone could have. There's so much going off in my head just now, and I completely agree that it's, <laughs> it, it's an exciting uh, place to be. One of the phrases that immediately sprung to mind was the the good is the enemy of the great and the great is the enemy of the best because you're speaking to people that operate at such a strong level already and to the yeah. outside world as you said they might be unbelievably successful fantastic but they know that there's a gap 
between where they are just now and what they're capable of doing. And one of the greatest potential deathbed regrets for anyone that chooses to listen to something like this on a weekly basis where we're bringing on people who are performing at high level or unlocking that level of performance for people is that they they go they they they, they, they go to their, their 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 resting place with this thought in their head like i wonder if i had pushed in this particular area more what might have happened i wonder if i'd been less distracted would i have achieved this i wonder if i had been more focused on this particular area maybe i would have achieved this and almost picturing or seeing that i don't want to say perfect because that's not the correct term but that excellent version or like peak version of themselves that they didn't manage to achieve so by at least addressing it early seeking the right resources to do it they give themselves the best possible chance of achieving that and not having those regrets at the end I, I agree. I think that that is exactly it. I mean, people see that there is possibility within themselves. And if they don't give themselves the shot, there is a, a deep regret and sometimes even a grieving that happens when they start to see that window close. You know, you know, you have opportunity, you know, that you can push things forward, you know, your career could be better, or, you know, your business could be better. And yet you don't always understand why it isn't there. And I think that is really the challenge, you know, like, that people who I work with, they have incredible skills and they can learn any skill that they wish to you know they're great learners so it's not about the skills they have the skills it is something about themselves and they're self-aware enough to know that there's something about me that is holding me to this level of operation and i need to break out of that i need to find a way to get to that other place where i know i'm capable of being and so that is a very intense kind of psychological journey. And I, that is the, the element where you say, well, what's the difference between kind of therapy and, and performance coaching? You have to use, at the highest levels, you do have performance coaching who, performance coaches who have backgrounds in clinical psychology or psychology because it is really that um, surgical intervention where you're seeing exactly what the challenges are and you're helping them to unlock that. You're forcing a little bit in some areas, you're pushing them in some areas, and they really welcome that because they want to get to that other side um, of the conversation, the other side of the challenge, and, uh, and they feel incredibly freed when they do. But who else do people go to who are at a certain place, you can't just kind of go to your friend and, and kind of say, oh, you know, I wish things were better and you're still making, you know, however many million a year. It, no one really has a lot of empathy for that. But for that particular person, if they know that they are capable of being at a much higher level, um, they still are driven to fulfill on their highest potential. And that's really part of my job is to help them get there, to challenge them, to help them uncover things they aren't seeing themselves and to be really a partner in that. How helpful was the comparison to Wendy Rhodes from Billions in terms of illustrating what it is you do on a day-to-day -day basis? I think that it helped my mom understand for the first time what I do um, on a regular basis, and I've been doing this for a very long time. Uh, but I think it helps the world understand that, you know, psychology used untraditionally, it has been used untraditionally for a very long period of time. You know, there are those positions in hedge funds and some other companies and that we do see high level executives that do rely on people to help them reach higher levels of performance. Having that show, it was fantastic on one end because you get to see that somebody has to know another person intimately to be able to challenge them and stand kind of toe to toe with this person that most people don't stand toe to toe with and have hard conversations. You know, I have no investment in, uh, you know, I'm not seeking a promotion. I have no external motivation. You know, you pay me a monthly retainer 
And that's about all that like my obligation is. So, you know, I'm not, I don't have any third, like kind of external motivations to, you know, blow smoke your way or, you know, compliment you in ways that aren't true. Um, but I also am paid to tell you the truth and to be very um, straightforward about things and what I see and, and how I think about it. So I think it did a wonderful job in that and kind of the intimacy of it, um, where it does a, a kind of a poor job is that her ethics are terrible. And there are a lot of challenges, you know, certainly for uh, television show's sake. But I love the fact that there is such a character because it allowed kind of the world to some extent. And even the Wall Street Journal comparison was such uh, such an honor that they said, you know, this is a, a role that, you know, they compare me to in, in that publication. I think that that is, um, yeah, it was a real honor. And I think it, it shows the power of what you can do behind the scenes that influences people, companies, and the products that they create. As you say, it's very much behind the scenes. And then it's kind of thrust into the limelight, albeit with an accentuated dramatic characterization because of the nature sure. of television, because we're not going to tune in and watch the more <laughs> calm, exactly, the more calm and uh, measured yeah. conversations as well. And when it comes to your your client base, I know it's something that's obviously kept under wraps as well, but I wonder in terms of characteristics, what are some of the things that continually show up either as areas they want to work on or as like real positive traits that you've been like, wow, this keeps coming up. These guys are at this level because of this. So I think that one of the areas I'll address the one that they want to work on first is sometimes it's very challenging for people who are drivers to know when to kind of pull the plug on something, when to quit, when to pivot, when to go into something new, because their tendency is always to push it through and to make it work. Um, and I think that you can waste a lot of resources. You can turn your team in a direction that is unproductive. You can do a lot of different things that if you don't know when to cut the cord and, and pull that plug and do it quickly, you are going to waste time. You're going to lose competitiveness in the overall market. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, but they're not. Their tendency is not to say this isn't working. Let's pull the plug. Their tendency is to say this isn't working. Let's figure it out. Would you define um, that so as a sometimes... resistance to the sunk cost fallacy? So almost like refusing to acknowledge that. I think it's it's that. I think that's a really good point. I think that can be a part of it. I think the other thing too is what does it say about them? Right. Like if you are, does it say I had the wrong idea? Does it mean that I didn't, um, you know, that I'm not thinking about this and the, I, I didn't see something correctly? Like, is this a reflection of an error on their part? And they tend to be very confident, very um, headstrong people. And so I think that the tendency to see that isn't always as uh, clear as it can be for others. I think others are more likely to quit too early. I think that these folks are sometimes more likely to quit too late um, because they want it to work. They feel it in their bones and they, you know, they see it in the world. And so they're very, um, they have a strong backbone. And I think they don't like to, to call it quits on something, especially if they believe a competitor might do it and might do it better. So there's all those variables, but I think knowing when to quit is a, a common thread of a challenge. I think balance is always a challenge for them in their personal lives. If we were to get more personal, um, Sometimes people talk about, you know, discipline and all of those various uh, things. These are not people who need discipline. They need like an off switch, right? Like they are obsessed with what they do oftentimes. And we need to say, hey, like, it's all right to go away for a weekend and maybe not think about work and allow other people to handle things. But they're always turning, always thinking. And I think that can be very challenging for partners and their family and um and for other people in their lives. So for the things that are, are challenges, I think those are definitely themes. 
um, without getting into any one kind of specific themes. But on the discipline I think theme, that, just quickly, uh, Julie, I heard sure. I heard you speaking about this with uh, with Danny Miranda, who's been on my show, and I absolutely love what he's building over there. Mm-hmm. It's it's an incredible show, and your conversation with him was great because when you mentioned discipline, interestingly, the type of demographic that you're working with that's not an area they're lacking whereas if you were to talk more general population the vast majority of people would benefit from having that level of grit to do the hard thing and they said they were going to do it and follow through whereas the type of person that's maybe built the kind of business that you're going into to try and improve and and scale to the next level it's already like driven by blood sweat and tears and the hard yards you're almost encouraging them to be like right dial down so that you can sprint again tomorrow or the day after that you need this day off you need this three hour break six hour break I think was one of the 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 terms that you were saying and these are people that are like no like why would I want to do that but you're saying to them listen I promise you like you'll probably perform better tomorrow if you rest up today do something with your partner do something with your family do something with your friends which is consciously relaxing because I I know and one of the terms you used earlier was autopilot and it's a phrase that the listeners must get like a klaxon in their airpods every time I say it because (laughs) Because I really, I really reel against that because sometimes if I look at my diary when I'm not my most disciplined and coherent, which is, uh, touch wood, quite rare, it's when I've not built in conscious rest and I've maybe let unconscious procrastination sneak in, whether that's the extra 20 minutes scrolling Instagram or replying to DMs, which of course has a has a place and it's, it's beneficial to yeah. engage my listenership. It's incredible where you get great feedback and you know where to go next. But it's almost like, it's glamorizing like an element of procrastination because I know that the, the, the more important thing for me to do would be to do the thing that I said I was going to do or physically schedule in that 30 minute walk with a friend or that that time I'm going to go to the golf range and practice. If that's scheduled in consciously, it's better than any sort of semi unconscious rest that happens in there. Agreed. Agreed. That is such a wonderful point because I think that what we consider to be rest when you are a person who tends to overwork is still a different form of work. Like you responding to DMs is important and it may feel like a break compared to much of the work that you do, but it's still work, right? So you're cognitively still engaged. And the thing about our brains is that, you know, you're still sipping glucose, like your brain uses glucose as fuel. And so you're really still draining resources while you think you're giving yourself rest. And so, you know, actually being able to give yourself, you know, correct rest, even if it's just a break where you go for a walk, walk around the block uh, when you'd normally take a lunch, don't eat at your desk, things like this that are very common can give you actually additional energy to take on tasks with more clarity. You often think through things. I mean, most people, if you think about it, you aren't having your best ideas or your most breakthrough ideas. Like, in the 10 minutes between meetings, like that's just not when breakthroughs happen. But a lot of times we're so tightly scheduled or, you know, you're having meeting to meeting and all of those other things that you're not really giving yourself space for some of your best work, which is cognitive. If I were to ask you about your show and, you know, how you think about your show, you're probably having some really fantastic ideas when you're outside, when you take a walk, when you're sitting on your sofa, when, you know, you get up in the morning, you're having a cup of coffee. Um, there's a lot of that space required for some of your optimal functioning. And space is not something that people who are driven like to give themselves, but it is really important to being optimal. And, and just to get back to discipline is that I do think that discipline has a place and I think it should be sparing all the time. I don't think that it should ever be the primary way in which someone operates because discipline requires push. It requires energy. It takes energy. 
when you are obsessed or you are excited about something, it pulls you. You know, you feel electrified by it. It feels so engaging. And I think that is something that I do see at the top is that, you know, no one has to force them and say, and they don't go, oh, I have to spend another day at work today. And, you know, oh, I have to go and train today if it's an athlete. Like, they love it. They can't wait. But are there areas that they still have to use discipline for and push through things that are boring or that they don't like? Absolutely. So you want discipline to be used sparingly because it does take and require so much energy. You want the majority of what you do to be a pull. And if it isn't, I think that's a signal. Like if you're dating someone and you're like, oh, I can't believe I have to go out with this person tonight. Like that's a signal. You know, perhaps you aren't as enamored with this person as you might hope. If you are engaged like that, you can't wait to see them. 10 o'clock at night, want to grab a hamburger? Absolutely, I'm there, right? Like, So I think that when we are really, really engaged with something, no one has to force it. No one has to push it. You are all in, you're excited about it, and you'll ride it out and you'll do what's, what's necessary. Uh, it also makes discipline a lot easier. I think that's such a great consideration. If you're being pulled towards something, then you should be using less of the discipline stores and the discipline stores should be reserved purely for maybe those must do inertia challenging tasks that you'd rather not but you know they must happen but they are a small yeah. portion of the greater mission and the greater purpose and the greater activity that you're you're focusing on I love how you phrase that. I think it's absolutely perfect. I think using it, thinking about it as discipline stores is a wonderful way to use it. Like I think about discipline is when you have to, you know, re-engage in a habit that you haven't used in a long time. You have to push through a task you dislike. Um, you know, like those are the types of things that require discipline. But if discipline is your everyday, you are going to be drained, burned out. You are not going to like your life. And so really starting to think about what what takes from me and what fuels me and trying to like kind of gear your life toward the things that really fuel you and give to you. And you know, you see that energy is infectious. You see it in other people. Like you can tell that you love your podcast, right? Like there is a way in which we understand the people who love what they do. And that energy can be anywhere. There are people who are phenomenal uh, at you know the trades. There are people who are phenomenal in their executive roles. And we appreciate all of them. It's just, it's a joy when you come upon them. One of the things that I have heard you say that some of your clients show up with as a challenge is that perhaps when they've been scaling or building their business or their career, they haven't focused on their physical self from a fitness True. perspective. Uh, interestingly from like a bird's eye view I've noticed a lot of the people that I see showing up online now that are quite successful in the business space are actually both ticking that box they're ticking that physical box I wonder whether that's just the nature of the algorithm showing me what I want to see or these creators perhaps are more optimized for it because they do have that quote-unquote whole package that people aspire to the brain the body the business the, the family the partnership but I wonder what that's like in, in real terms when you start to see your clients and those that maybe haven't optimized for that area as well. I would challenge you to look at those folks. Like, for example, Mark Zuckerberg has been a great example, right? Guy got in great shape. He's fighting. But like him building Facebook, you should look at him then, right? So in the building, I think this is where we see like Jeff Bezos, right? In the building, Jeff Bezos did not look like the jacked, uh, you know, muscle bound man he is today. So I do notice that is the pattern that I notice is in the building, people are so hyper-focused in the building that that takes all of them. You know, if they're taking care of that and they have a family or a spouse or a partner, like that is all the time that they have. 
And they often overlook kind of their physical appearance or health in ways that can be detrimental. I mean, they can have heart attacks and physical problems. And, you know, those are the things that no one really talks about and happens more frequently than people think. But in the building phases, usually people are not... Um, not in great shape. I mean, sometimes they are, right? There are exceptions to that. I work with a, a gentleman who's in phenomenal physical shape and does really well in his position, but that is a, it is uncommon to be at a top level kind of athletic uh, place and also be able to manage having, you know, all of these other things. And usually you get there when you start to have more time. So like Mark Zuckerberg has a bit more time. He can go and train. He has he you know, the leisure more. to do that. He's, so much more. So I would challenge you that when you start to see these individuals at this level, I mean, Elon Musk, right? You know, like he's still building and then he gets to a certain place. And now he's, I think he's very conscientious about it and wants to, um, you know, kind of get more engaged, but it is really common. I don't judge people for that. I think that, you know, your focus is your focus and, you know, you can only, you only have so much time and energy and hours in a day. So, uh, but that is a common pattern that I see is that people, you know, kind of neglect some really important areas of their health for a long period of time. And then, you know, if they're fortunate enough to get to the other side, um, they begin to really care more as their success grows. Also, they start getting a much more forward facing uh, role. And so you, you tend to care more just because more in the press, you're more in, you know, your face is more in things. Um, and so you become more conscientious just because of the public as well, because, you know, they are brutal and they are not going to let you go. I think that's a great observation. And thank you for for, for pushing back there in, in, in a way that I can fully understand too. I, I was actually recently at a, a mastermind group here in, in Glasgow in Scotland, and there was maybe 30, 30 people in the room. And one of the gentlemen mm -hmm. stood up quite near the end and said, I look around and I'm probably the most out of shape guy here. And that makes me feel not great, but mm. it also inspires me that you guys are running businesses, content platforms, and all these different things and managing your shape. And he was saying, he knows that when he feels his best, it's when he's a couple of stone lighter. Yeah. And he was saying that there's probably a clue there looking around. Now these are entrepreneurs, not at the same, uh, in the same breath as a, as Zuckerberg or, or a Bezos. This was like a kind of a six figure entrepreneur event, which is a great place to be at, at, at the, the age group we all were. Mm, and it's really, wonderful. it was really exciting, but he was saying that like, I wonder if I can dial my health and fitness hub up just a little bit, I'll feel healthier and I'll perform just as well yeah. as you guys in the room. Cause there's a lot of people in the room that are maybe doing more revenue or more, more opportunities than he is. And he's maybe just fallen away from that particular area. So one, it was amazing that he stood up and was willing to expose yeah. himself in that way, which is amazing. Cause I think that's one of the benefits of a mastermind. Cause you're surrounded by people that are kind of on your level in some way. And they feel like I can mm -hmm. maybe share this other thing. But for him to verbalize that if I can maybe dial up this other area, I don't think it's going to take away from my business. In fact, I might feel better. I might have better, more consistent energy. I might be less on the energy drinks. I might be less on the on the, yeah, on, on the caffeine. And uh, there, there's a lot to be said for that. I agree with you. You know, like I do think that, uh, you know, it is absolutely important and can increase your energy to use your, some of your terms, use your, it will increase your energy stores. If you're able to be, you know, better about your sleep, your eating, your, uh, you know, aerobic fitness and your health and even some weights, because, you know, the way in which you're going to function is going to improve. Uh, it's just, unfortunately, when I hear people and what they tend to cut, that is like the first area that people tend to cut. And it's, wonderful if you can keep a consistent habit. The people that I often see that keep the most consistent habits are ones that have them built into like, I go for a run every morning, right? That tends to kind of, but if you're waiting until midday to go and work out at the gym, or you're going to go after work, 
those are the things that really get very challenging. I do have people who have trainers who will come in and start to really help them be more religious about it so that they don't cancel. They don't, uh, you know, like they can't get out of it. I probably have three or four people who have trainers that then show up and, you know, you have to do the work. Um, so there are ways in which they try to protect themselves. And I do think that health is becoming much better uh, known now as kind of the risks that are in uh, operating in your business without focusing on it. I also think that like the new generation of entrepreneurs care a lot more about their health and fitness, and they get more tactical about it with wearables and data and all sorts of things that people who are already maybe in their 50s or kind of beyond uh, don't think as much about or, or really haven't had the social pressure around that people today do those, in a good way. Yeah, those are great points. I think from a gamification perspective, wearables like Whoop or other brands are available, yeah. I'm sure, enables these people who have a competitive spirit in them in their business to apply that to mm -hmm. health and fitness. Like, oh, they see that james's resting heart rate is 55 and they're like whoa no i'm not letting that happen i need to get mine in that area or, or whatever it is but equally i think when you talk about young entrepreneurs an awful lot of this younger generation coming through are also slightly more tapped into social media from the very start so their image is out there earlier in the same way you were saying like a bezos or a zuckerberg as the limelight shines on them they maybe become more conscious of how they look how they show up because they're being paparazzi that every single opportunity mm -hmm. but many young entrepreneurs who are growing their brand have decided to grow their personal brand alongside it as well and there's 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 Good less point. people than before who are building in silence the business and not building their personal brand alongside it so for you to maybe show up confidently and feel your best from a vain perspective it might well be there may be more focused on that on that health and fitness as well amazing point amazing point you are absolutely spot on because most of you know and, and to be quite frank most of the clients that i work with are not on social media at all so that would make a, a really good um that's a really good counterpoint that if you are building a personal brand you know the world judges you in a certain way and so people are far more motivated to show up in a in a very different light it does and um, julie before we went deep on on that particular we were going to discuss um some of the common positive traits that you notice within your client mm -hmm. base what are the ones that stand out for you? I think the ones that really stand out for me are that, um, you know, there is no uh, impossible, right? Like that they see that something that they think about in their head can be done and they will try to force that thing into the world in a way that is compelling and interesting. Um, that, uh, you know, like that there is a side door, there is a way for it to happen and they're going to figure it out. I think there is a deep self-belief in their own capacity to figure things out as they move forward and that they utilize that as kind of the undercurrent for everything else. So we talk about people being relentless or resourceful or all of those other things, but those can only exist if you have a deep self-belief. So the undercurrent to all of it is that there is this really deep self-belief. They're autodidactic, right? They're self-learners. They are, um, they are kind of obsessed with what they do. I think that that's often a, a part of this as well. And so the undercurrent to a lot of the traits that we talk about, if you think about it, is really self-belief, you know, being confident, thinking you can do something, pushing something forward, you know, getting to the yes instead of being taken down by people who say no to them or tell them things are a bad idea. Uh, I think that oftentimes the, the thing that is fascinating, given what you just said, is that they don't care as much about social opinion in part because they're not really a part of it. A lot of people, you know, if you're running your own business, you're not really on social, um, it, you don't get really the same kind of feedback. You don't get the same kind of, I, mean, I don't want to say bullying, but you don't get a lot of the same peer criticisms and peer pressure and all of that type of thing. Um, 
it's really fascinating to me that people go through the building process now and, you know, they say, oh, I'm going to build in public. And, and it's such a challenging way to do things. I think it makes it twice as hard, not that you can't be in publicly building, but that how you talk about it should be probably very um, behind the scenes and, and just building your brand without giving too much away for people to criticize and, and kind of throw mud in your direction. If that relative unwavering self-belief in the kind of the process and what they're capable of is is a real positive what do you think are some of the limitations that some people do put on their own success that either you've dealt with or you know Mm -hmm. would enable them to maybe get to the level to be somebody that would work with you the limitations that they would put on their success uh can you be more clear about that yeah so i mentioned right at the start of this conversation like self-limiting belief so you were saying there that a positive Mm -hmm. trait is that people have this like quite strong underlying belief what are maybe some of the areas that you might think they might have limitations in terms of I'm not capable of this and um, this isn't something that people like me achieve this isn't something that somebody from my hometown has ever done or anything like that I, I, I wonder if you've come up against that or seen in your experience I see that a lot on the way up so sometimes I'm fortunate to be able to work with entrepreneurs early on in their journey because of you know like there are funds like for example Alexis Ohanian in his venture fund he gives a certain amount to founders early on for their own self-development and so they can hire someone like me or someone else uh, to kind of take them on their journey so I do get to see people earlier on in their company building sometimes and so those are the beliefs that I often see along the way right that they are they have to overcome because there is this kind of competing narrative of, you know, who do you think you are? Remember where you come from? You know, like all of those types of narratives, I think really kind of ring in people's head. And for me, it really taps into a concept I call like imaginary rules that people, you know, you grow up and you learn all about like the good rules, right? Like how to make sure that you stay in the law and that you're kind to people and you have a moral compass and all those things. But there is a sense of what you absorb from your surroundings about what is possible. What do people like you achieve? Um, you know, how how do people from where you're at behave? What do they do? And some of those, even the mores of like, don't brag. You don't want to get too big. You want to like. There's all of those other things too: modesty and humility, and all of those uh, that can keep, kind of keep us small in many ways. Um, so I really challenge people on the rules that they have around their own capacity. The people who get to a certain level, you know, you've built a company to half a billion dollars or whatever. You don't really feel that like you've kind of broken through a lot of those types of self-limiting beliefs. You may have problems that you can't see. And that's why maybe I would come in. But the ones who can see that like, you know, I just feel like, who am I to be pitching these VCs, right? Like, and they feel really nervous around it. And, you know, we try to reframe that. Like if you have a company that has traction, is doing well and has a great product, you know, this is an opportunity for somebody outside of yourself to make a ton of money getting in early, you know, and you're going to give them a piece of it for doing absolutely nothing, right? I mean, well, hopefully they'll help you along the way, but you understand what I'm saying here. They're not doing the building. So really thinking about, you know, how do you frame your experiences you know, why not you? Why is it that, you know, when you start looking at these rules, um, let's challenge these and see if they are factually true. People can be incredibly held back by these self-definitions that they have. And and it's really unfortunate that some folks will end up self-handicapping. They will, you know, self-destruct. They will, I mean, there are so many ways in which people will end up, you know, burning their uh, house to the ground in this way. 
And so you really want to be sure that when you work with someone like that, that you challenge them very directly, but you're really doing it in an objective evidence-based capacity. Because there are people who come from everywhere who get to kind of the highest areas of achievement. And maybe that's not even your goal. You know, like everyone's goal is different. There are people, I, I think personally, you know, some people will say, oh, it wasn't a very big exit because the founder only made like $3 million, but like it's life-changing money. Like, I think that's incredible. So, you know, like there are ways in which we then start, you know, we compare ourselves to people online. We start to look at how other people speak about things. Um, some people just want a lifestyle business where they're going to make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and it's, they're going to live very comfortably. And, and so that's going to be their path forward. And to me, my job isn't to judge what their, you know, goals are. I want them to reach whatever goals that they have for themselves and not to be limited by, you know, this kind of small way of thinking about what they're capable of doing, because it's so much of it is just about your own belief. Almost in the opposite vein, what work have you done around somebody who's maybe got an ego that's gotten out of control? You know, you, I think that for people who have egos that get very large, you have to show them usually the evidence for why that is detrimental to their business and their finances, you know, um, because you can't say, oh, it's a very ugly thing to be around. Who cares? I mean, they don't care about that. Um, people are going to be yes men, whether or not they're pleasant or not. So it, I think that like at certain levels, people are going to um, not tell you the truth and they want to be in your circle. And so oftentimes there's incentive for people to, um, not really tell you the things about yourself that cause challenges in where you could be. So I, I mean, you know, I'm very frank about it. You know, like when people have egos that have gotten out of control, oftentimes the first, you know, some of the early uh, things that they'll complain about is they'll say, you know, no one ever brings me ideas. I'm the only one that has ideas. Well, why do you think that no one brings you ideas? I don't know. I, you know, like, do they, do they not have, uh, you know, good thoughts? You hire some of the best people, you know, they come from this company or this company. Well, I don't know. I don't know why. And so it's got to you know, be the we'll environment like, they're, they, and they can't see yeah. the wood. They can't see the wood for the trees at that point, can they? Yeah. Right. So we'll, I'll suggest something like, well, what do you say we do like a 360 where I'm going to talk to eight to 10 people in your company and, you know, like we do it under the, under the uh, protection of anonymity. So no one is, uh, I don't give any names, but let's like, ask some questions and see what's going on here. And they're usually very happy to have that explored because you know, they do see that some of the greatest entrepreneurs or business builders, they do get, they get opinions from other people, you know, like Amazon Prime is not from Jeff Bezos, it's from some, you know, person in the company. So you have to be able to hear that. Um, and so you'll start to learn that people will start to use words like, oh, you know, they're fearful. Um, you know, there was one uh, person that I had evaluated that people would literally say that, you know, they became nauseous before they had to meet with this person because they were so like, kind of terrified and they would talk to them in, in ways that were very uh, challenging. So, you know, people get to hear that feedback. And I think that it's a real eye opener. I think they know sometimes that they can have uh, abrasive ways of operating or, but I don't think the impact on other people is quite as apparent, not because they're always callous, but because, you know, when you are the person at the top, you know, nothing really touches you in the same way it does if, you know, you need to feed your family or your job's on the line or, you know, like there's a little bit, of, there's a different pressure there. So, um, so that's kind of how I try to bring it to light. I make it very uh, objective, very much about the business. I don't make it personal because, you know, you get into things and you say, oh, you're too egotistical. 
And that becomes like a personal argument that I don't think is useful. It's not going to change anything. So let's talk about like how this influences your company, the bottom line, innovation, uh, competitiveness. And those are things that are really going to perk up their ears, make them pay attention. I've, I've heard you say before and seen you write before about like that kind of challenging feedback piece where you're giving direct feedback. Mm -hmm. You're almost trying to bring people on side with the mission. I, th I think one of the examples I, I read was you were talking about or perhaps um, we're not getting enough inbound leads through our marketing. So rather than going into marketing and going crazy, like, oh, why have we not got any leads this month? Or sales are down because of you. It's very much like, what can we do as a collective to improve the quality or the volume of leads coming through as a unit? And I love that. I love that example because I see it all too often in, in different companies that I've worked in over the years where there can be like an us versus them dynamic, particularly between sales and marketing of all, of all functions, as, as, I'm, as I'm sure you, you've probably seen too, Julie. So what other yes. areas would you recommend people improve to give feedback or receive feedback? I, I do think that, you know, the example is, is definitely one that I've given in the past. So thank you for doing your homework and, and coming to the table with that. Um, I, I definitely feel as though we have to put ourselves on the same team as those we want to when the problem to face the problem together. And so, you know, you don't want it to be like, hey, it's me versus you. You don't want it to be like, you are terrible, you are the problem. And, um, you know, I am here to come and, you know, yell at you and correct you. Um, at least, you know, the first way in which you are going to engage someone should be like, how can we figure this out? How can we tackle this together? Let's talk about ways we can brainstorm this. Is there ways I can help unlock or, you know, unblock something for you? The thing about that is that if you are a me versus you kind of person, that's where you start to shut off people coming to you in the early stages of problems. So if the leads are down and you've just yelled at them or cursed at them because the leads aren't good, you're not going to be their first call when they start to see leads dipping. They're going to be in a panic. They're going to say, I'm going to try everything. I'm going to do what I can. And then by the time you find out, it's got to be bad because for them to face that, they're going to have to wait until things really take take a turn. This, this, and then the you're really going to be angry. so great. So they come to you when it's so bad that I need to tell them now or I need to tell them now rather than I'm, it's now out of control. I, I need to escalate this. That, that is a really illustrative example of when like there, there almost needs to be so much pain before you address it and, yeah. and it's a terrible situation to be in whereas when it was mere when it was merely a scratch rather than a gaping wound we could have maybe addressed it together as 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 a unit as well wonderful example wonderful example and you know like if people feel like you're on their team and you're there to genuinely help solve problems you know you could even say like hey if you start to see this take a dip like let me know or you know if there's something that you feel like i could really be useful for like let me know how the strategy works they will come to you you want to be seen as somebody that people can talk to and have some a bit of of openness because with that you start to learn more about your organization if you're if you don't contain openness and your organization starts to shut doors around you you know marketing starts to not tell you anything and then you know like all of these other areas of your company start to not tell you anything you know you become the least informed person in the company and that is a seat that puts you at risk and then things end up happening that are catastrophic and you're like why didn't anyone say anything why didn't i know about this and then that becomes like a real challenge so and and people will actively be hiding things from you financially marketing etc all throughout the organization and it, it does put you at risk so you know, you can be, a, there's a variety of ways if you're a hard charging leader or you're somebody who does tend to be more aggressive, you can build in buffers so that the people they report to maybe are not like you. Uh, there are all sorts of ways in which you can strategize around it. But um, 
yeah, you got to really think about the benefits of having an open uh, a company that openly communicates and your part in either making that effective or not effective. Absolutely. And a lot of high performers and leaders will need to have challenging conversations. And, and one of the terms that I've heard you use before is learning to fight up front. How do you equip people yes. to do that? So the term of fight up front comes from, you know, I do have a forensic background as we talked about. And so one of the, the concepts in forensics is that, you know, if, if you're ever, you know, it's, it's a strange thing to think about, maybe it's a product of when I grew up, but they would always say, you know, if somebody ever tries to kidnap you, you fight as hard as you can, because, you know, once you're in that van or you're in that car, wherever they take you, it's, you, it's unknown and it's going to be worse, whatever's going to happen to you. So you might as well have the challenge up front. And so I thought about that with respect to communication that, you know, if, if you need to have a hard conversation, someone's starting to underperform, there's something going on with an executive or even a coworker that is really challenging. It's so much better to have that conversation early because if you let it go and you kind of let them take you into that van and you wait three months, you're just hoping it gets better, six months, then the conversation gets really hard. The behavior is very ingrained. People don't understand why you didn't say it, talk about it earlier. Now it's a problem. It's, I've been doing this for six months. Um, and then that now, whatever happens down the line, like the executive, you didn't want to have the conversation with, et cetera. Now the performance is worse. Um, now you have to go to this bad place and it's going to be worse, uncomfortable. It's, you know, whatever outcomes that they have had because of that behavior is going to be worse. Like if you just have the conversation early, I know it's uncomfortable, but it doesn't have to be, if you do it right, it's not a fight, right? So you want to be able to just engage with them and say, Hey, like, can we chat for a moment? Like, I know that we're just working things out right now. And so it's early, right? We're just working things out right now. So tell me a little bit about how you're thinking about your role and like, let's line it up with how I'm thinking about it rather than them going way off the rails. And then, you know, three months down the line, you're ready to fire them. It's terrible. Uh, but you kind of didn't have the important conversations to help it along the way. So I, I'm really a big fan of having these hard conversations early up front and kind of pushing through that. I know it, it's hard for so many people. They're conflict averse, but if you do it correctly, it's, it's not a conflict. You get the conflict if you wait. So try positioning it early, framing it right, making it casual. And people are usually far more receptive than if you're now trying to correct a really problematic behavior. It makes me laugh. There's a big overlap between the advice that probably almost two years ago now, a, a dating coach gave on my podcast, Dr. Taylor Burroughs. <laughs> she was speaking about in the early stages of your relationship, both of you really set your stall out for what's an acceptable behavior, what's an unacceptable behavior and the standards that you expect of each other, whether that's mm -hmm. communication, whether that's manners, whether that's, it could be anything in terms of social media etiquette and behaviors. If for example, and one of the things that she talked about was like, you're really uncomfortable that your boyfriend's liking photos of girls in bikinis on social media, then if you don't address that early on, he's not going to think that's a problem. And if you then have an argument after a night out or a dinner that's gone wrong and you bring that up, he's going to think that's ridiculous because he's always done that. So um, if you've always done what you've always done and you've let, let that slide for such a long period yeah. of time, it then becomes a much more challenging conversation. So in, in, in a business context, of course, if you were to say to somebody, oh, I'm really disappointed by the number of outbound calls you made in the last month. That's why our numbers are down. And they're saying, well, I'm making the same number of outbound calls that I have for the last three months and you're only raising it now. It, right. It's a, it's, it, it, it's, it's a ridiculous position for that person to feel like they're in and no wonder they would, it would turn into a, a proper fight at that stage. 
A hundred percent. And, you know, what a great observation by the dating coach. I completely agree. I think that when you have, you know, expectations and standards, you set them early. I think we all want to be nice people. You know, we want to be the people who, you know, but nice is often disingenuine, right? We, we're doing things because we want people to, oh, we don't want to cause them any duress. We, but it's not holding true to the standard that we actually have. And so, you know, it's okay to not be a nice person, be a good person instead, have standards, have things that you really want to hold to and be the person who is able to kind of hold those standards and you you will be end up being happier in your work, in your life, in your personal life. I think that's a great rule with dating is to just be upfront. If something's challenging for you, it doesn't have to be problematic, but you are absolutely correct that if, you know, you have a bad dinner or something and you bring up things that people have been doing for months, you can't expect them to know if you haven't had that conversation. Um, so I think it can put people in a very unfair position as well. I'm glad you bring up that point around being nice because I've seen you talk before about breaking free of that need to be seen as nice because it can be a little bit crippling if you are aiming for this level of success, which the kind of people you work with have. They yeah. can't be seen as nice, but being seen as good is 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 absolutely fantastic. Whereas nice, yeah. like you say, it has elements of almost like being too accommodating and too I don't want to be I don't want to say like um too much of a pushover but that's kind of where I'm going with that Julie in terms of just always being yeah. like oh I'm, I'm a nice guy like I'm an I'm a nice boss I'm a nice colleague okay great but I can lose respect for people that don't ever stand up for what they believe in I agree. I think that it puts you in a, in a position to be seen as a people pleaser and people take advantage of that. People will take advantage of you uh, as a worker in a relationship. I mean, you name it, people will find a way to kind of take advantage of that. You know, that's a concept that, you know, I, I have a newsletter, the ultra successful newsletter that I publish on Substack. And every single week, I try to parse out concepts like this, because I do think that if you can make these small shifts, right, you can make these small changes that it can change the trajectory of your happiness and your relationships in your life, but also in your work. And it is a hard shift to make, but I always challenge people to take away and say, okay, what is one area where you feel like you may be being too nice here? Um, just as with other concepts, you know, kind of challenging them around those areas. If you can take those challenges and kind of weave them into your week as you go throughout your week, I think it can bring a little bit of up-leveling and really a personal challenge to how you move about your work and life to be the, the best version of yourself and also to actually get what you want. I think at the end of the day, we can easily feel that other people control our fate or you know our progression forward when in fact the people who end up doing, you know, getting farther in their career, if they're an executive, they're an entrepreneur, et cetera they are the person who kind of decides where they want to go and starts to make decisions based on that. You know, there's a person who's going to, you know, wait in their job for someone to promote them. And they, some people will wait for years. And there are other people who will say, you know what, I've done this job for a year and a half, maybe two years. I have these wonderful skills. I meet all the criteria for the next level up. And so they, they take that next move. And then, you know, they're in that job for a couple of years, they take the next move. And there's the person who's still at that one company waiting, you know, they're waiting for somebody to grant them this promotion. And this other other person who started at the same level is now three rungs ahead, making twice as much money because they took the initiative to really, um, you know, pursue the things and not wait for others, not wait for the outside, uh, but to really take it for themselves. And I think we can feel conflicted around that because it feels like, am I being too selfish? Am I doing this or that? 
But, you know, the world is not uh, kind of built for those who are just waiting around for people to crown them, right? Like, you have to do it yourself. And so I think that as we move throughout our careers, we have to decide, you know, what do we want for our next level of operation and really have the courage to seek that out, to go for it, to try. And it will be shocking to most people how often the world just kind of bends to what you desire and, and how you move. It will move around you. Um, and it will go at a much quicker clip. I, I love so much of that, Julian. I know you used the phrase there, like, don't wait for the world to crown you. You need to almost crown yourself. And I know that's a phrase that you have on, on, a, on a lot of your material as well, including your your uh, your Twitter or we call it X bio. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I really, really resonate with that. And speaking of your newsletter, one of the things that I, I wrote down that I absolutely wanted to share in the podcast with with people was very similar to that, where you, 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 you wrote that people who don't challenge you on your bad habits aren't your friends. A lot of mediocrity is built by those who cheer behaviors that sell yourself short. People who dare to tell you the truth, who see you more and root for more are probably the better friend and that links tremendously into what you were saying there in terms of you don't necessarily need to be a nice person or like the nice guy but don't surround yourself just with nicer yes as well because you're selling yourself way short they probably will allow you to coast or not reach the potential that we spoke about at the start of this podcast that god forbid we get to our dying days and we think oh if only I'd had some more aspirational people around you who maybe called me out of my bullshit, maybe encouraged me to pursue the things that I should have done. And I think when you're putting out messages like that, I think it's really healthy. And I love that you're doing it in a longer form, written um, form as well, because while, while I, I was telling you before we hit record, one of my very good friends and previous guests in the show, Chris Burns, recommended that I follow you in, back in January. And I've kind of fallen in love with your huh. stuff since then. But the fact that you mix up the aphorisms and the insights that you share on Twitter with this kind of longer form stuff in the background. And of course, podcast interviews like this one and many of the other fantastic shows you've been on. I think it's a great blend for people to really fully understand what it is you do and what people can do to tap into their own opportunities to better themselves. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, you know, the um, the newsletter, if they want to, they can listen to it on their way to work. I try to make, there's an audio overlay, um, not a podcast by any stretch, but just me literally reading the newsletter in case you're somebody who prefers that format. But I do think that, you know, if there is a takeaway of the work that I've done, it is that, you know, I get to see people who have done a lot of great things from professional athletes, people who go to the Olympics, to people who are, you know, running billion dollar companies. And the thing about them is that they are shockingly normal people when you chat with them you know people who do great things are not different than you and i they have a focus and an obsession and some of these other things but you know the capacity is there within almost everyone as long as you have your health you know an average iq and you feel compelled to work hard I, i really do think that the amount that you can achieve the things that you can grab, the ways in which you can move forward and the goals that you can achieve for yourself or set and achieve for yourself are really much higher than you probably ever thought possible. So you just keep moving iteratively, you know, keep doing audacious things, keep taking chances. Um, and I think that you'll get there. It's just a matter of like watching yourself on that journey. Not everyone starts off at, you know, the very end where they have the things that they do. Uh, it's a long road forward. So I thank you so much for talking about topics like this, because I think, I hope that they are personally challenging for people to think themselves like, you know, as I said, everyone I speaks with says, deep down, I know I'm capable of more. I would hope that your listeners probably feel that too. And I hope that they challenge themselves to dig into that and say, okay, what am I really capable of? And what am I going to do about it? And um, 
And I hope that that's a takeaway that they get from this conversation today. Amazing, Gillian. A really empowering, stimulating, and encouraging note for us to wrap up on. I've loved this conversation. I'm sure the listeners have as well, as you've just said. Where should they head towards to continue the conversation with you? They can reach out to me. I mean, Substack is probably the way to follow my work. Uh, it is ultra successful uh, on Substack. Um, but my personal, if you want to reach out to me personally, I'm on Twitter. So um, I'm at Dr. Gurner, D-R-G-U-R-N-E-R. So thank you so much. That'll be linked in the show notes. Thank you to you, Dr. Julie. And thank you to the listener as well. I'll be back to speak to you all again very, very soon.